it does kind of seem intuitive. Like sometimes when I'm trying to define it, I just use the same words. When I think about when I perform pause and reflect, I think I perform it literally every day. So pause and reflect, I think, begins to build sort of ahas in a body of knowledge. There's actually some science behind group dynamics and, and things like brainstorming. Some may say that pause and reflect can be the best form of evidence that we have about our programs. I had this memory of they would call them hot washes, but um, but it was like, but it was like more rapid. It was like in real time, kind of like a red team. So yes, there's tons of names for them. Hot wash is my least favorite. I believe that pause and reflect practice at an individual level, at work and at home, is one of the most important practices, but it's often the first to go. We'll keep running down a path with blinders on and not keeping an eye on everything else that's happening around us. You know, that's that's ground zero. That's where you have to start uh, to ensure stakeholders are on the same page. I'm a senior learning advisor on the CLA team, which is part of the Bureau for Policy Planning and Learning. My name is Anjali Richards and my title is Program Cycle Specialist and I am currently working at the Center for Resilience in the Bureau for Resilience and Food Security. My name is Julie Uimana. I am a Strategic Monitoring and Evaluation and Learning Advisor. I support USAID Zambia, USA Liberia and the Center for Violence Prevention. Perry Pachris, Instructional Design and Facilitation Specialist, and I support the uh, PPL Bureau. My name is Sean Peabody. I'm a Senior Learning Specialist with USAID's Program Cycle Mechanism, which is an institutional support contract for the Bureau of Policy, Planning, and Learning. Namitha Jacob. I am a PCM Specialist in the Mexico Program Office. My name is uh, Rick Spencer, Activity Design Specialist. I am within USAID's Bureau for Humanitarian Assistance, BHA. Sam Gersten, Office of Democracy, Development, and Innovations. Tina Bienkia, Monitoring, Evaluation, and Learning Advisor. And I support the program office within the USAID Somalia mission. So for a number of years, even before AID started Pause and Reflect, there were organizational stock takings. And, and many organizations I've worked with, typically in a strategic planning process, we would do sort of a organizational plus delta. What's working well? What's not working well? Let's reflect upon what we were doing. Pause and Reflect sort of captures that sort of both individual behavioral and organizational dynamic. The phrase Pause and Reflect is simultaneously purposely vague and attempting to be inclusive in terms of the various sets of practices that are included. Also, the objectives that pause and reflect practice can achieve. What I love about the pause and reflect phrase and other phrases like um, reflective practice, reflective learning, we used to say big picture reflection a lot. That was a term that was early in the early CLA days at USAID. So those are some of the other kind of terminologies that float around with respect to this practice. It can really be at an individual level. It can be at a team or organizational level. And so it's really applying a practice of taking an experience that you've had, something that's happened, and stopping and saying, what just happened? How did that go? How did I feel about that? What's the upshot in terms of what I learned from that? And what might I do differently going forward? 
I think pause and reflect is an intentional time for adaptation. I think other organizations, you know, might call it like an annual check-in or a progress check or a data synthesis meeting. But I think with USAID, I, I like the term pause and reflect because it keeps it broad enough that you can adapt the concept to the specific purpose of whether it's your project or an activity or, you know, whatever else you've got going on that you want to learn from. To me, pause and reflect, there's two words that come to my mind. First one is opportunity. So by that, I mean an opportunity for all who are involved in an activity team or, or just more broadly in a, in a programming team to contribute evidence to their program. The second part of that is pause and reflect to me, it means evidence, not to necessarily compare and contrast it to other forms of evidence we often gather. I feel that they can be seen at the same level as all different forms of evidence and, and to not diminish the fact that pause and reflect is uh, evidence in and of itself. I just think about slowing down, right? Pause and reflects give us an opportunity when they're done well and when they're integrated well to create a platform for collective constructive criticism of how we can improve together. Intentionally creating the space um, for a group of people to come together and just reflect on what are we doing and why are we doing it? So within the context of what I do and what our team does here at BHA, pause and reflect, broadly speaking, is really a, a purposeful approach to finding key milestones in, in the life of designing an activity and validating assumptions along the way that contribute to an effective design. Pause and reflect can affect and inform different aspects of our work. It can be about a programming, a an intervention, a technical question, but it can also be things like how did the team function? How did we develop this culture of mutual support and all hands on deck? It can be as easy as you, you make it. And so some of my pause and reflect moments are in just one-on-one -on -one conversations with people in the program office. Just have an intentional discussion with someone. I think there are ways that you can take it that step higher, which is the pause and reflect level. I think pause and reflect or pausing and reflecting as a practice is critically important for international development work, primarily because of the complex dynamic contexts within which we work. Also because we're always needing to learn, engage, particularly with local stakeholders around kind of what are we learning? What do, what do we need to do differently? One reason I'm so committed to this work is that I believe it needs to be constantly built in, intentional, resourced from the start to allow time to stop and reflect on how things are going and to adjust if needed. We cannot assume that the solutions that we're proposing in the context within we, which we work are the correct solutions. Because I think, I think one thing to kind of keep in mind is just development work writ large, but then also specifically the work that USCID funds, they're all hypotheses and theories that we're testing, right? We're saying that in this context, this is a problem that we've identified and we theorize based off of previous work or just what we've learned in this context that if we do ABC, we will be able to affect this change, which then kind of helps to pick away at that problem. So it's an assumption. And I think we all have to keep that in mind and keep intentionally creating these spaces to kind of sit down and just ask ourselves questions about 
does this assumption still hold? Has the context changed? Are we still doing the right thing? It's important to recognize what would happen if you don't do a pause and reflect. Without it, I think the inertia of just everyday work will take over. You'll collect the data and work will certainly get done, but your changes that you'll make to your project will, will tend to only happen when there's a crisis. So having a pause and reflect gets people talking openly about where things are going and what can be done about it. And it's a really important tool for moving a team out of reactivity and into proactivity. A lot of times, especially with the USAID life cycle, you know, the activities are pretty short. Five years is standard. So there isn't always enough time to learn from not only what's going well and your successes, but also any failures or any problem sets that could occur again or be applied to other contexts. I think, you know, that piece of the learning is really important. And I actually, I remember when USA used to just do monitoring evaluation and there was no L. This was actually when I was an implementing partner. And so I remember, I can't remember what year it was, but when they made it MEL and added the L to it, I think that was kind of the time when it was important to really learn from the experiences. I think before that L kind of came into the picture, a lot of what was the focus was, was more about, okay, you're spending all this time. And, you know, what are the excesses? What can we report out as quick wins so that we can report that to taxpayers? And so I think that, you know, from a partner standpoint, that was a big shift. And so I think that was really important. And I'm really glad that that's now kind of part of the culture. I think it's extremely important to the work of collaborating, learning, and adapting. Looking at, okay, this is how the mission functions. These are the annual processes they have. These are the quarterly processes they have. What are some ways I can find insertion points for CLA that can actually make the mission more productive and create this culture of learning? If there is a redundancy, if there is an overexertion of resources, if there is a longer process than is needed, then hopefully there's a way that we can improve that. The pause and reflect moment is really important because if BHA, Washington, and the mission are not on the same page with the basics, such as the target population and the geography and planned location of where the program is going to be implemented, then you know that's where you have to start. Much of the decision-making within BHA, whether it's an activity design or monitoring and evaluation or other program implementation, decisions are often quite consultative and collaborative. Studies have shown that setting aside a consistent practice of pausing and reflecting at an individual level increases your productivity as measured by, for example, your ability to retain information, to apply learning, to really internalize trainings, whatever. So at that individual level, incorporating it into our daily practice behaviors, expectations about how we perform and interact with one another, I think is also quite important to just the overall effectiveness of an organization, including but not limited to USAID. We, we know we don't know everything, and if we can uncover what we don't know, it helps us. It may helps us change our theory of change, may, may help us design something differently. So uh, that's why I think it's been a, a critical. The next step is what makes effective pause and reflect, and that's de determining whether the evidence that we're generating out of a pause and reflect activity is, is robust. That can be a principle applied to any sort of pause and reflect type of activity or scenario or process, because there are many. 
is the evidence coming out of our pause and reflect moment inclusive of everyone who was in the room? Is the evidence comprehensive of the all the different roles of people in the room? You know, influences and opinions and experiences. Is the evidence non-biased? And so obviously when you have a bunch of people in a room all have a connection to an activity, for instance, there probably will be a lot of bias depending on on who's sitting and what the questions and discussions are. So, you know, just with any other type of evidence gathering process, you got to discover what what measures were taken to at least acknowledge potential biases or, or mitigate. One aspect of successful pause and reflect is being quite clear before you start about how you're thinking about applying the outcomes of your pause and reflect to ask yourself kind of, is this going to inform a policy change? Is this the next project? Is this my own kind of learning for how I do my work? The second thing, and it kind of ties to this, is that everybody needs to understand what the purpose is. So for example, when I did a pause and reflect for USAID Zambia with our MEL team, before we even launched into the pause and reflect, I I asked them if they had ever done one at USAID. Do they know what they are? Do they know what the purpose is? And set that expectation of honesty and openness. You need to be very clear on why are we gathering today? Why are we here today? And kind of to what end? And so making sure that purpose is clear. I think pause and reflect work well when there is a high level of trust. It takes time to get to that high level of trust. And so if you're, I think, if you're working within a system where maybe this is the first time that you're doing it, recognizing that the first one that I hold might not get me what I want to, but how do I start to lay the foundation so that when I start to ask questions where people are pushed to be more vulnerable or where people are pushed to to kind of think about where things did not go well, that we have that trust as a group. If there isn't just an intentional structure that's thought about, it's very easy for it to either become a venting session or for it to become a session that ends up overly focused on a very minimal point that's not the the, the, what's important, right? But maybe because that's the point that's most comfortable for people to talk about. I think what's important for an effective pause and reflect session is to have a neutral facilitator host that event. Oftentimes, people have a vested interest in the process that they are currently doing. When you do a pause and reflect, there may be an outcome of change. In order to get equal inputs from everybody, it should be a neutral and unbiased facilitator leading that discussion. I think you really need enough time. I think you need time to dig down three or four levels deep. If, If you rush the process... The tendency will be to stay at the surface level and give the, the easy answers or, or to glance over the tough questions because people don't want to disrupt the flow of the group. They're more likely to stay quiet, not challenge each other on uh, where they have questions. Or maybe there's just not enough time to really dig in and, and get to the bottom of, of disagreements or of just differences in perspective. So if you've got more time and there's an expectation that decisions are going to be made, you're, we're going to change this project or activity or whatever it is, then the group can focus on, okay, so there's going to be changes. Where do we want the changes? Let's make sure we're changing the things that need change. Uh, And with that expectation, then I think you get everybody lined up, you know, with the right incentives moving towards, you know, let's, let's get these adaptations to the places where they need to be. It's also really important to document your pause and reflect. 
So document the key decisions and things, and then really use that and refer back to it. So I think being quite clear about action items, so to speak, but also having a reality check on what's possible. I have definitely witnessed the problem of lots of aspiration and just not enough resources or time or whatever. So I think the clarity of action planning ends up being quite important. I think a good tip for pause and reflex is to remember that part of it is also relationship building, like the, the relationship building point of, of pause and reflex, right? Pause and reflex are done best when they're not immediately the first reaction to something going wrong. I think that they're much better placed as a common thing that happens because when they're common, they don't automatically send up red flags to our partners, to our colleagues, to whoever may be the stakeholders. We need to use the, as much evidence as we have at our fingertips. And I think this gives us a platform to do that. And I think in terms of building a strong culture of learning, we really want to change part of that paradigm to be more collaborative and more collegial. And then I think another tip would be to make sure that it's two-way communication and you are also open to constructive criticism yourself in terms of the process or the product or often at USAID, it's how we explain things, how we communicate. And I think just one more very practical tip that I've done, and you can do it physically, but also virtually as well as breakout groups. So again, thinking about who is participating and depending on who speaks loudest, who doesn't speak, how do you break out these groups? Um, because sometimes staying in a large plenary group, again, just kind of just amplifies whatever dynamics are already existing. And so how do you take advantage of being able to break people up, being able to get people to focus on areas that where you want to kind of get their input um, and then come back? And now with COVID, we're having to think about how do we hold this virtually? What does that mean in terms of people's attention span and how do we get people to participate? I also think having like an interactive way to facilitate the session, I mean, I've done ones in person where you do it on the board with stickies because you can just get people up and moving around and involved. And it also gives a sense of like you're sharing your ideas among the group and you're not, you know, putting something up that's permanent. And so a lot of the decisions aren't made until the end of like the session or the workshop. So I think doing that, you know, either in person or virtually with the uh, mural boards are helpful as kind of keep it interactive and also more inclusive. And then you can hear from kind of all levels of staffing as well to kind of hear feedback. If you've got more time to do a pause and reflect and you've got some good facilitation, hopefully you can get the group really searching out what are the opportunities we have to do something different or better or really kick it up to the next level. Opportunities often are just linked more to the context and are harder to predict in advance, but are much easier to spot when you're in the thick of things and when you do a pause and reflect to really search them out. There's actually some science behind group dynamics and, and things like brainstorming. And there's a study where they ask a group of people to brainstorm all the ways you can use a pencil. And then they have another group and they have people individually think of how many, how many ways they can use a, a pencil. And you would think because we think groups are good at being collaborative and coming up with uh, lots of different ideas that you would think that the group would come up with more than individuals, but it's not true. In fact, individuals, if you add up their responses, they get more than twice as many ideas as that group does. Groups actually are not as creative as people working on their own, 
But then groups do have some great benefits in terms of collaboration and getting buy-in from people. And you know, I'm not saying we don't want to work together, but what I am saying is you want to structure an interaction like a pause and reflect. So not everything is a full group or even a small group activity. You want some things where people can sit and reflect individually, come up with answers, maybe talk to one other person and reflect, and then filter the ideas up so that then, you know, as you come back to the plenary, you've got a lot more priority and filter and focus on the outputs, and you're going to get much better answers to whatever question or challenge you're struggling with. Just thinking more critically about how do how to engage leadership, right? Because I think leadership does have a role. And so how do you figure out what that role is and how to engage them? I think another thing we have to recognize that there are a lot of power dynamics inherent in this sector and within USCID as well. And so if we, I think part of pausing and reflecting is also being intentional about who is in the room and whose voices are being heard. A lot of these activities are developed by a specific group of people, right? And then as part of the activities, it's our responsibility to make sure that we're pulling in the voices of those with whom we're working with, the communities within which we're working with, to make sure that we validate what these theories are. We have an opportunity to engage various stakeholders, have different voices be heard, have different interpretations of why what happened happened be brought to the table, not to mention what should we do about it. Uh, and it's the richness of those different perspectives that really have to be applied to solve some of the most complex development problems in the world. 